you're going to, I'll give you a little time, minor profits. They're kind of fun uh, to find. And uh, they're back there somewhere. They're kind of in the middle. And so I hope you find that. And uh, just praying that God will inspire our hearts through this little book to be the kind of servant of Yahweh that we're going to see that Obadiah was. So let's begin by majoring on the minor prophets. I want to introduce you to Obadiah. That's really what this lesson is about. He was one of the 12 minor prophets with a major message for God and his people. There were 12 minor prophets. I call them the dynamic dozen. They're not the dirty dozen. They're the dynamic dozen, the divine dozen. Who are the minor prophets and why are they called minor? So let's take a look at that. First of all, minor refers to the size of their prophecies, not their significance. So when you think minor, you don't want to think, oh, these guys aren't really the important ones. It refers to the size of their prophecies, not their significance. Now, the major prophets, there's four of them, and those major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah with his book of Lamentations, and Ezekiel and Daniel. In fact, why don't you turn, if you have a printed Bible, turn to your table of contents in your printed Bible, just so you can kind of get orientated. So uh, turn there, find your table of contents, contents there, and at the end of the Old Testament list of books, you see the first four major prophets. Then following that are the minor prophets, okay? And these are the prophetic books that were... So here's the difference. Major means... The major prophets, their prophecies were big enough to fit on one scroll, okay? So they would write out one scroll. That's a major prophet. The 12 minor prophets, their prophecies are small enough that they uh, would, they're just smaller. And in the sense that so small that all 12 of them could be written on one scroll, so if you were carrying around scrolls in the day of the prophets, you'd have four of them, uh, five counting lamentations for the minor prophets, and then you'd have one scroll that had all been knit together. And these, before the time of Christ, were called the Twelve. So when you read the minor prophets, and really I, I believe this is what God intends for us, you read them all at once. Okay, the 12, and you see them all together. And when you do that, uh, you'll see repeating themes that will help you to under, better understand them. And so the 12 minor prophets, if you're looking there in your table of contents, are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, which we're studying, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And they, these are not in chronological order in your Bibles, okay? The only chronology that you see here is that the first six were written before the last six, okay? The first six were written before, and we're going to see that more than likely, we can't be sure, but more than likely, Obadiah was the first of the prophets to even, uh, first of the writing prophets, so even before uh, these four the major one. So Obadiah is a great place to start when you're studying the prophets. 
Let me look at some major facts about the minor prophet Obadiah. So let's talk about Obadiah now. And there's three things I want you to see just to intro. First of all, he's the most minor of the minor prophets. Now, what do I mean by that? Most minor of the minor prophets. I don't mean he's most insignificant. What I mean is he's the shortest of them. He literally, it's one chapter, it's 21 verses, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament. So let me challenge you to read Obadiah every day for the next 30 days. You really, when you read the Bible, uh, a, a book of the Bible, and repeatedly read it like that, you say, well, you know, after the first couple days, you'll say, well, I've already read this, I've already read this. About the fourth and fifth day, you'll realize, whoa, I'm seeing things that I didn't see. And it's real easy to do this with Obadiah. And if you don't choose to do that, I'd choose to do it for 30 days. And then read it every Saturday night before you come to church, or even Sunday morning, because you can do that to orientate yourself to the book. Second thing I want you to see about Obadiah, it's the first, as I've said, of the 16 writing prophets to receive a revelation from God. Notice uh, Obadiah verse 1. Notice what it says in your Bibles. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Now look there at that verse, and it kind of seems contradictory at verse. He receives a vision, but he says... Thus says the Lord. So which was it? Did you see it? Did you hear it? And the answer is both. Here's a definition of vision. A definition of a vision, a biblical vision. It's this. Vision refers to a verbal revelation from God that was communicated to the prophet by means of a vision or a dream. You say, how's that work? I don't know. I've never had one, okay? But what I know is it was more than just a verbal impression on his heart. He was seeing things. And this is, uh, I don't want to say common, but it does happen among other prophets. For instance, Isaiah 2.1 says this, the word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. The word, the message, but he saw it. Listen to Habakkuk 1.1. The oracle, or an oracle is a verbal proclamation, an oracle, a prophecy, which the prophet Habakkuk saw. And yet later in Habakkuk 2, it's, the Lord says, Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it, on tablets that the one who reads it may run. So you just got this, you know, record the vision. Well, I saw it, I heard it, but then I'm going to put it in writing. Now, this is not even unusual in the New Testament. For instance, the book of Revelation was given to us as a prophecy to the Apostle John through vision, a vision with many visions within that. Uh, Revelation 1.11 says this, Write in a book what you see. Write in a book what you see. And send it to the seven churches and in there that are in Asia. But then, the very next verse says this, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw. And then comes this marvelous revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's just, I turned to see the voice. And so you have this prophetic vision 
that communicates the word of God. And we shouldn't be surprised at this. Why? Because the book of Hebrews reminds us how God revealed his big story down through the ages until the arrival of Christ. Listen to Hebrews 1.1. God, after, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways... And what he's saying there is prophecy has come to us in many parts. Think of streaming a a series on Netflix, okay? You have all these episodes of which frustrates my wife because you have to wait then. And so like now, whenever we watch anything on TV, I can count within 30 seconds. Now, is is this one of them episodes? Is this one of them episodes? Yes. Oh, man, those drive me nuts. You know, and then you watch, and then we watch, or if we binge watch a whole season, and then I said, oh, by the way, next year we'll figure out. It just drives her nuts, okay? But Gwen, that's what prophecy is. Prophecy came to us in these parts. That's literally what it says. Some of your translation says many times, but the idea is, yeah, timing is in there, but it came in chunks. It came in episodes until that final season and that final episode, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And a good final episode wraps it all up, answers all our questions, makes sense of the story, pulls together all the characters and all the threads, and that's what Jesus Christ does. So here's Obadiah, who is privileged to be the first episode in many episodes, prophetic episodes, who, like every prophet, is pointing down through the ages to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, when did this happen? The date of the vision. Uh, We can't be sure, and if you're like me, I mean, I'm no scholar, Old Testament scholar when it comes to this. Dating in the Old Testament freaks me out because the earlier things are larger numbers. I'm not going to go into it. It's just weird. It's reverse of what's going on. And so either there's an early date, which is 840 B.C., or a later date, which is 586 B.C. The whole point is we're trying to figure out The story of Obadiah is about a time when Israel's enemies are ransacking Jerusalem. And during that defeat of Jerusalem, during that attack where they're being taken away and they're being pillaged and raped and all the things that you're hearing going on in Ukraine is what went on when a city like that was attacked. And Edom, which was a neighboring nation, and we'll look at maps and stuff as we progress, but Edom, which was a a neighboring nation, which was also a blood relative. Edom came from Esau, Israel, and Judah came from Isaac, or uh, I'm sorry, Jacob. And so these two nations, and instead of being a good brother to Israel when they were being attacked, they took advantage of their brother. And when the uh, people were escaping, they shot them down. Uh, When the gates were broken down, they rushed in to pillage along with Israel's enemies. And so we don't know exactly when, but I believe it is the earlier date Here's what I want you to know. Even though Obadiah is the first, the third thing I want you to see is little is known about him. 
Little is known about him except his name. Obadiah means servant of Yahweh. Servant of Yahweh. And servant can sometimes is, is, is parallel to the idea of, of a worshiper. And that's always a good reminder. The Old Testament reminds us that true worshipers are active servants. We talked about Virginia today. And that's what Obadiah was. So we don't know a lot about Obadiah, unlike most prophets. We don't know, they don't, they, they, he doesn't include his father, his family, his clan, his tribe. But what we know is what God wants us to know, and that's his name. And so for the rest of this lesson today, I want us to look at three ways that Obadiah's name, servant of Yahweh, reveals why we should care about this little book tucked away in your Old Testament. And so let's look this morning at what's revealed in the name Obadiah. Because I believe the meaning of his name unlocks for us the meaning of his message in this book. So let's take a look at the first thing we see is his character as a person. Whenever you look at someone's name, and whenever you study names in the Bible, you want to remember that in the Bible, names often reveal the character of a person. And what's interesting in the Bible is that when a person's character changes, God often gives him a new name. What was Abram's first name was Abram. What did it become? Abraham, right. And Jacob's first name was Jacob, but what did it become after he wrestled with God? Israel, yes. And Simon was Simon, but then he encountered Christ, and what did his name become? Peter. And so you see this pattern in the Bible. Now, in our culture, we tend to pick names based on sound and making sure that our kid won't get tormented on the playground, which is a wise thing to do, a gracious thing to do toward your kid. But in God's economy and in the revelation of the Bible, names are meant to reveal the character of a person. Okay, And they would choose them. They would choose names often to point to the destiny of a person or God himself would give you a new name. And this idea of name and character is still true today. And it's a good thing for us to remember. And it's this, that when people hear your name, they think of your character. You know, so regardless of what your parents were doing when they named you, the fact is this, when someone hears your name said, they immediately begin to think about your character. And when you heard Obadiah's mom say, Obadiah, it's time for dinner, you heard servant of Yahweh, servant of Yahweh. What a gracious name to be given and a gracious reminder. So here's two things we see about his character. First thing I want you to see in his name is Obadiah's humble heart as a servant. He had a humble heart as a servant. He was the servant of Yahweh is what his name means. Now, Obadiah was uniquely qualified to receive this vision that contained hope for the humble. And why is that? Because humility is essential to being an effective servant of God and others. Okay, so Roger, when he was here talking to us about the last two feet, that's where servanthood takes place, isn't it? Did I, did I listen well? 
That is. I mean, it's the reason we hold off from those last two feet is because it's going to cost us. And it's, it's, it's humbling and sometimes even humiliating to serve the Lord. And so humility is essential. And let me just quickly give you two examples. And Roger really did this, and this is coming to me now as I'm thinking through this, all those verses that you took us through. But think about Christ before his incarnation in Philippians 2. What did it take for Christ to come? Well, he was equal with God because he was God. And yet, the Bible says in Philippians 2, he did not selfishly grasp hold of the glory that he received in heaven, but set aside being recognized as God and took on human flesh and human nature, not surrendering one inch of his deity, but clothing his deity with complete and total sinless humanity, and then being found in the appearance as a man. Now, you've got to understand that. Oh, you're just another guy. You're just a Jewish dude. You're just a carpenter. you got that Galilean accent. And they dismissed him, and they abused him, and they treated him like he was nothing but another human being. Now, just think, if you and I are God, and we get treated like that, I just would, you know, I'd be zapping people. You know, I'd be saying, oh, yeah, let's, you know, uh, we just, Amber and I just saw a Marvel movie where somebody's like, their mouth disappeared. That's what I'd be doing. You know, I'd be saying, well, let me take care of you. But you know what Christ did? When he encountered that, he became obedient. And how obedient? Unto death. What kind of death? A cross death. Literally a cross death. The most humiliating, excruciating, shameful way to die in the first century. That's all that he did. How low did he go? He went to a cross death. But think about before he went to the crucifixion. On the night before he was crucified, what does Christ do? They're all sitting around the table, him and the 12 men that he invested his life in for three and a half years, that he was banking everything in his ministry on. He was their Lord. He'd shown him that he was fully man and fully God. And there they sit down to dinner and they were all too proud to do what? To wash the feet of one another, much less even their master. And what does Jesus do? Once again, he sets aside his robe and he girds himself with a towel and he takes the basin. He kneels down and washes their dirty feet. You see, humility is essential to servanthood. Obadiah had a humble heart as a servant. You know how you and I know? If we have a humble heart as a servant, a couple things. One, do we serve when no one sees it? Do you serve when no one sees it? How do you react when people see it, but they don't praise you for it? And how do you react when you're just treated like a servant? I'll never forget after graduating from college, which is, you know, no small feat, and I was accepted into my uh, seminary that I that was my dream place I wanted to go and in the summer between college and seminary I worked at Taco Bell in a brown polyester outfit and I remember the first night going down there and the dude that trained me 
was a neighbor from about four houses down from my, where I grew up who was a high school dropout, of what we called a freak back then. And I just stood there, and I'm like, what in the world have I got in my... And then I just realized, and I was studying through Philippians at the time, and I said, this is it. This is it. This is how you know you have a servant's heart. How do you react when you're treated like a servant? So he had a humble heart. The second thing I want you to see is Obadiah's humble hope. He had a humble hope in Yahweh. A humble hope. So he had a humble heart as a servant. His name was servant of Yahweh. But he had a humble hope in Yahweh, servant of Yahweh. You say, Chris, and this is big in our culture. Big in our culture today. How do I serve and not be taken advantage of? What if I serve and others abuse or take advantage of me? And here's the reality is we serve in a fallen world and bad things happen. And that's what was going on in Israel. Israel was the servant of of Yahweh, uh, specifically the nation of Judah. They were the servant of Yahweh, and yet they were being attacked by their enemies. And where was their hope to be found? And not only were they attacked by their enemies, but their blood relatives, Edom, the Esauites, the Edomites, they were taking advantage of them. Have you ever been betrayed by family? Have you ever been put upon by friends? Have you ever been crushed and down and then others are piling on? Where do you find hope? You find hope by humbling yourself before Yahweh. That's what Obadiah did. Now, when we talk about this name Yahweh, it's more than a generic name for God. Just as names reveal our character... God's names reveal his character. And so I want you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, and we're going to take the time to read some of these core passages that remind us of the meaning of Obadiah's name, and more importantly, the meaning of our God's name. The unique God, the true God, the one and only God, Yahweh. So look at Exodus 3.13. This is when it's revealed for the first time. Exodus 3.13. Let's read beginning there in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? Because you see, they were living in a day and an age when there were many gods. Well, which God is it? And here's what... The Lord says, verse 14, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus shall you say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. You see, you can't categorize God. You can't limit him. He is who he is, and he will always be who he will be. He is I don't know if that sounded right grammatically, but it was good doctrine, okay? Uh, that's who he is. Now, he says, thus you will say, and then look at verse 15. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God 
of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. The special name of God, uh, the best that we know to pronounce it, Yahweh, meaning I am who I am, that's his name. Now jump to chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 2. He has some more to say. Here we see kind of the application of his name. Chapter 6, verse 2. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Now in your Bibles, Lord is all caps, which is telling you this is the name I am. So literally what he says is, I am the I am. So anytime I see all caps, I always plug in I am to remind me that it is, or I'll just say Yahweh to remind me this is God's redemptive name. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, the all-powerful one. But by my name, Lord, I am Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage and I have remembered my covenant. So I made a promise that they would have their land, but they're enslaved in Egypt. Well, what kind of God is that? Okay, are you going to hold up your end of the covenant? And he says this, then I will, I, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you will know that I am the I am your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the I am. There we see the idea of I am is that he's not only a, pro a promise maker, he's a promise keeper. The idea is, I made a covenant with your fathers. You're in bondage now, but I'm a promise keeper, and I will redeem you and fulfill that. Now, why would he do that, and how can we trust that he will do that? Turn to Exodus 34. Turn to Exodus 34, where we see that a promise made is only as good as the person who makes it. Look at Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud, and he stood there with Moses as he called upon the name of the I Am. Then the I Am passed by in front of him and proclaimed, and look at this, the I Am, the I Am God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. You name it, if you've done it, I can forgive it. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He's not a God that ignores justice. He's super abundantly merciful while maintaining justice. I will visit the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth 
generations. Now, here's, I just want you to see that what he's driving home for us is we have a humble hope in Yahweh because of who he is, the promises he makes, and his character and commitment to fulfill those promises. But I want you to go back to Obadiah. Turn back to Obadiah 1. Hopefully I'm going to pull this together for you. Look at Obadiah 1, the vision of Obadiah. The first reference to God in Obadiah is this. Thus says the Lord God. The Lord God. Now, is Lord in all caps in your Bible? No. But is God in all caps? Yes. And the reason being is God there is the name Yahweh. And it's coupled with this word that means Lord. And so instead of the translators translated in English, Lord, Lord, they put Lord in small caps, which means sovereign, master, ruler, all authority, large and in charge. And then couples that with Yahweh, the promise keeper. And the point is this, this God that we serve is a promise keeper who has the authority and power to keep that promises. Amen? Now, that's, that's no small thing. That's no small thing when you're being crushed by powers greater than you, and you're, you're in covenant with God, and He's promised to protect you, and you're saying, like, God, this ain't much protection down here. And you've got to remember, no, He's Lord. He's Lord. What does this combination mean? Thank you, Audra. Yahweh means God is a promise keeper and Lord means he's powerful enough to keep his promises. Hey, we should be excited. And here's the deal. You say, well, what's this got to do with Obadiah? Well, here's the point. If he's power, if he's all powerful, I better humble myself under him and serve him. But guess what? I can serve him in hope. Because he's a promise keeper. Isn't that beautiful? Why can you and I, in confidence, be servants of Yahweh? Because we should be his servant because he's Lord. And we should be his servant with a humble hope because he's a promise keeper. And I hope that's encouraging to you. All that just from his name, the servant of Yahweh. But let's look at his name further. His name also reveals his calling as a prophet. His calling as a prophet. There's all these different names for prophets. One of the most common in the Bible is man of God. But that's how people viewed prophets. They were so characterized as living in communion and receiving communication from God. They were called a man of God. But you know what the Lord's, Yahweh's favorite name for his prophets it was my servants, the prophets. My servants, the prophets. So when Obadiah, this man that we know nothing about, except for 21 verses in our English Bibles, when he is called to be a prophet, the servant of Yahweh is called to be a servant of Yahweh. He's a double servant. That's all I'm saying. Now, what is the calling of a prophet? Let me give you two Definitions. Number one, be a mouthpiece for the covenant-keeping God. Prophets truly were, in some sense, reduced to mouthpieces. 
You go and you speak for me and speak everything I tell you, and you've done your job. Ain't the easiest job on the planet. In fact, it's the hardest. Speaking truth, especially to rebels and unbelievers and people that are mocking God, and yet that was the mouthpiece of God. Listen to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18 is the first passage to tell us what a prophet is. It's where God reveals. And here's what God says. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. My servants, the prophets. Why? Because they speak what I tell them to. Nothing more nothing less. Jeremiah 1.9 put it this way, Then the Lord stretched out his hand, touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Okay. So here we are back in Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah, look at verse 1, Thus says the Lord God, and then he says, We heard a report from the Lord. Then you drop down to verse 8, he says, Declares the Lord, and you drop uh, verse 4. Then you go to verse 8 and he says again, declares the Lord. And then in the last section, for the Lord has spoken in verse 18. All I'm saying to you is the first calling of a prophet was to be a mouthpiece for God. The second role was this, be a mediator for his covenant-breaking people. If you get these two things put together, you're going to understand the Old Testament prophets if you can keep these two things in mind. Every time I'm reading a prophet, he's a mouthpiece for God, and he's speaking what God says. Totally, completely, faithfully. But also, he's a mediator. Uh, Well, let me say this. He's speaking from the covenant-keeping God but he's a mediator to a covenant-breaking people. And that's a tough place to be. That is a tough place to be. What's a covenant? It's a promise sealed with blood between two people. What's a mediator? He's a middleman between two people who made that covenant. So literally what a prophet does is he hears from God, he mediates, he hears from God, and then he turns and he speaks to the people. And basically, the people respond to him like they've been responding to God. So if they've been shaking their fist at God, what do they do to the prophet? And if they are rejecting God, what do they do with the prophet? They reject it. And if they hate God, what do they do to the prophet? They kill him. They kill him. And that's why Jesus said, you killed all the prophets. And what did they do with the greatest prophet? They killed him. They killed him. Not because of who he was, but because of their hearts towards God. So let me give you, as a covenant mediator, Obadiah has a twofold message. So now I'm, I'm, let's see what he's giving to us, okay? Here's the twofold message. One, there is hope for a humbled covenant breakers who repent. There is hope for humbled covenant breakers who repent and again we'll get into the details in the weeks to come but understand this at the time of Obadiah God's people God's covenant people have been delivered from Egypt and they have possessed the promised land 
And they're supposed to be in charge of that. They're supposed to have milk and honey, and they're supposed to be defeating their enemies and sharing the greatness of Yahweh. And instead, what we find in their day, Jerusalem and Judah is being attacked. You're like, oh my gosh, what is going on here? How can this be covenant keeping? Well, it is on God's part. Who was breaking the covenant? Judah was breaking the covenant. And therefore, God brought discipline upon them. And that discipline was to lead them to confess and repent of their covenant breaking, humble themselves to the Lord, and He would bring hope to them. Why? Because He's a, he's a promise keeper. Does that make sense? So I promise to be your God. But you need to live like a people in the presence of a holy God. When you disobey, I'm a good heavenly father. I'm going to discipline you because I'm going to keep my promise to you. But you need to then humble and repent. There is hope for covenant breakers this morning. Secondly, there's warnings for proud covenant breakers who persist in their rebellion. Now, this is a prophecy to Edom. You're saying, Chris, was Edom in covenant with God? No, they were, they were not. They had not uh, bowed their hearts as a people and a nation to Yahweh. But you know who they were in covenant with? By blood? They were in covenant with their relatives, their blood relatives, Judah. Now, when your brother gets attacked... When your family is attacked and you're a blood relative, what should you do? You should fight for them. You should defend them, right? What did did Edom do? They joined in on the attack. They broke covenant with their blood relatives. And therefore, there's the wrath of the covenant keeper. Because really, in a sense, all of this goes back to the Abrahamic covenant, which is, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Edom was doing a double sin. They were cursing God's people by attacking them, but they were cursing their own blood relatives. And God says, your day of judgment is coming. Israel or Judah, what is going on with them is God's allowing them to be attacked. God is allowing them to be ravaged and defeated as a people because they have rebelled against God. And he's saying, look, I'm letting this crush you to humble you, to return to me, and I will deliver you. Hope for the humble. Warnings to the proud. Be an Obadiah. Be a humble-hearted, hopeful servant of the Lord, and you will be blessed. That is the message. Now, the third thing we want to see, and we'll end with this today, is this, his challenge in the prophecy. Obadiah's name is played out in his challenge in the prophecy. And so bring up this. Let me, here's your chart. Here's your big overview of the book. Okay, little book. But even the little book has structure to it, okay? And so the first section is a day of doom. The first nine verses is a day of doom on Edom. Why? Because they are the proud rebels. They won't bend the knee to Yahweh. 
and worse, or not worse, but in combination with that, they are pillaging and taking advantage of their blood relatives at their weakest moment. Then you have the day of discipline, verses 10 through 14, for Judah. They are the humbled servants of Yahweh. In in a sense, Obadiah is an embodiment or even an incarnation of the nation. They are the humbled servants who are being defeated and taken advantage of. God is disciplining them because they're his people. Their covenant is secure. These guys are on their own. And they're only going to get doom and destruction. And then the passage turns, and verse 15 is the key, to a day of destiny, a coming day of the Lord. Not just for Edom, but all nations. Not just for God's people, Judah and Israel, but for all nations. And in these verses, we see a combination of the proud, the humbled, and the sovereign Lord who rules over. Isn't that, I mean, does that just get your juices going, right? So let's look at it again. Let's look at this day of doom. We're not going to read, we almost could read the whole book, but let's look at eight and nine. Here's the key verses for this first section, the day of doom. Look at verse eight. He's saying to Edom, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy Wise men from Edom, they thought they were prided for their wisdom and understanding from the mountain of Esau. Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman. They prided themselves on wisdom and warriors. And he says, I'm going to strip you of both. In order that everyone may be cut off from the mountain, which represents strength of Esau by slaughter. That's a day of doom. But now, look at the day of discipline. That's in verses 10 through 14. In these verses, as you read it for the next 30 days, like I hope you will, you will see that day is used 10 times in just five verses. 10 times. And basically, Israel is going to go through a day of misfortune, a day of destruction, a day of distress, Two times, day of distress, and three times it's called a day of disaster. God is so committed to our holiness, and He is so jealous of a relationship with us that He will allow severe discipline into our lives to draw us back to Him. And listen, that's not a reflection of His hardness. It's a reflection of our own. He is compassionate. That's why I read those earlier verses. He is compassionate. He is faithful. He is trustworthy. He is loyal love. And he says, I will basically rain down on you to remind you that what you need is me. And I love you. And I want to live with you. But you need to be a humble-hearted, hopeful servant. And then the day of destiny is verse 15. Look at verse 15. Here's the pivot of the whole book. And it takes us in from the past. Everything that we've read up to this point is going to be in the past. Now it transitions us to the future. And it says this, For the day of the Lord draws near on all nations. And here's what's going to happen in the day of the Lord. 
As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Wow. Hope for the humble. The day of the Lord will be a day of great reward. Warning to the proud this morning, the day of the Lord is going to be a day of wrath. Turn now and serve the Lord in humility. So let me end with this, and it's from Philippians 2. Hope for those who want to be humbled servants. Let me just remind you as we move through this book, the Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect mediator. It wasn't Obadiah. It wasn't Moses. It wasn't any of the prophets. They all pointed to that final episode, to that final season finale. They pointed to the humble servant, the sovereign Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Read Philippians 2. And it just takes you through the message of Obadiah. And it shows us that what we fail to do and continue to fail to do, Jesus has done perfectly. Amen. And he went as low as he could go. And he was exalted as high as high could be. And guess what name he was given? Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And I would put forth to you in that Lord are the two ideas of Lord sovereign over all, and He is Yahweh, the I Am. He is the Lord God that Obadiah pointed to. And because of that, Jesus shows us these next three truths. And I just want you to dwell on them. Humility is proven when you're tested as a servant. The proof of Jesus' servanthood is He went to the cross. The proof of our servanthood is when we're obedient to the point of denying self to serve others. Pastor Bruce just preached on that. Number two, number three, humility pays when you serve a perfect and powerful promise keeper. You say, Chris, how do I know it's going to pay? Right now, it feels like it's costing me everything. And it will. But you know what? It pays. It's going to pay off. This week for Virginia Taylor. Do you think for one minute, one, even one second, facing her Lord, she's going to say, man, I gave too much. I served too many times. Man, I regret going to church when I didn't want to. I wish I had served less, went less, worshipped less, loved less. She's not going to say any of that. I hold her up here. But you know what she's going to say? None of it was worth it. I mean, none of it was enough. None of it was sufficient because of who you are. It's going to pay. And it's going to pay for all eternity. And then finally, pride has no place in the hearts of true servants. I hope it's going to be hard these next weeks. I'm just telling you. Why? Because we're talking about pride and humility. Pride, I got a lot of it. Humility, I don't have enough of it. It's going to be hard these next weeks. But you know what? We have the Lord Jesus Christ who stands in our place. So I end with this principle. And it's going to be our motto for the weeks to come. Jesus is our I am. So we can be his Obadiah. Are you with me? Jesus is our I am. So we can be his Obadiah. What do I mean? Humbled and hopeful servants of him.
Isn't God good to give us his word? But more importantly, to give us his son. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you for Obadiah, a servant of you, who was the first of the prophets and whose little message has such a big impact on our hearts. I pray that is the case in the weeks to come. Oh, Father, let us look to you and to your son, the ultimate servant of Yahweh, who is truly the sovereign Lord of all. And we release our sister Virginia to you and rejoice in the reward that awaits her. May we follow in her footsteps as she followed in yours. In Jesus' name and for the fame of that name, we pray. And all God's people said, 